Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game Productions. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined today by my Hall of Fame co-host, Jim Cott, and this is Cott's Corner. We're in episode 181 on the network. Uh, before I talk to our audience and we get to the show, I just want to welcome Jim back to the show. I know I had a, had a, a journey up the East Coast, uh, played in a great golf tournament, which we'll talk about through the show, but wanted to welcome you back to your show. Well, thank you very much, and I enjoyed uh, stopping to meet you and uh, Tanner and since we've done a number of these, that was the first chance we had to meet in person. So it was a great experience. Oh, same here. Same here. Tanner enjoyed it, as did I. Had a good couple hours of talking baseball and life, eating pulled pork, a little unsweet tea, and some coffee. Can't beat it right. up. <laughs> so, but uh, get to our audience now. Uh, 17,000, creeping up on 17,500 subscribers this morning. I'm sure we'll eclipse that easily this weekend. We backloaded our week this week, but want to remind them, continue to download, listen, like, subscribe, rate, and review. We battle analytics in the podcast world, just like we do in the baseball world. If you do that for us, we can keep providing you great content like we do on Cots Corner every week. Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or Stitcher, you can get us on any of those streaming devices. If you have another one, let me know. I will subscribe to it. Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Oddly enough, this morning's question was about pitching, Jim. Um, big, big question on command versus velocity. So I answered one live and everybody else will get a response back privately. We're now in 72 countries, grassroots all the way to MLB front offices. And we got everybody's ear. We're just trying to build a better baseball IQ. And as a reminder to our audience each time, as we begin every show, um, and specifically today, Cots Corner, just prepare to embrace some of the uncomfortable truths about baseball. Because um, this program, like all of our others, we really have no time for the unco- for the comfortable lives. So we're going to hit you straight on like we always do. I recommend you do your own research. But with that, Jim, welcome back to your show. And um, excited to hear about. Well, I'll tell you what, you got a nervous Will George on your hands right now because I did leak to him that we got you got some Will George stories. <laughs> well, you know, you had prepped me about uh, Cal and Will George being roommates. So when I had a Cal, obviously was busy that day, but I had a private moment with him and were able to visit a several minutes. And uh, so I said, uh, Cal, I got to ask you about Will George. And his eyes lit up. He said, oh, my first minor league roomie. And they had a deal. Will was a cook. So Will did the cooking and Cal did the cleaning. So he remembers vividly those uh, days in the minor leagues with uh, with Will. And I can relate to that. I mean, I still stay in touch with uh, Sandy Valdespino's uh, daughter. And Sandy was my uh, roommate in 1958 in uh, Missoula, Montana, in the minor leagues. Those are such great days because you don't know what the big league life is like. So you just uh, enjoy the days with your minor league roomies as Cal did with Will. Yeah. Well, I, I leaked that to Will. And Will George, of course, our audience knows, is a co-host on A Day at the Yard, Common Sense Pitching with Wiley and Will, current scout for the Colorado Rockies. And his partner is Mark Wiley, who's a longtime pitching coordinator in Major League Baseball. Um, and Will's one of the originators of the network. But when I leaked that to Will, I've never seen Will so nervous. He was scrambling his brain to find out which stories Cal was going to reveal to you. <laughs> I've got about nine others that I can't uh, He didn't dish any dirt on him. He just he actually complimented him uh, with his cooking skills. Yeah. Yeah. Well, our audience knows about Will's cooking. He, he talks about it all the time. He's, oh, uh, good. Yeah. Uh, well known, at least in theory, to our audience. And his wife backs it up that he's a great cook. And, um, he, he can talk the talk. He knows cooking. So I, I tend to believe him with Cal's endorsement. We'll, we'll go with it. But yeah, I, we have about, I've got about nine stories that, that, that are, that are uh, a little incriminating that Will said, oh, God, I hope he doesn't tell one of those. So for, no. that was a good one. That was a good one. So, well, how, how was the tournament as a whole? Who were some of the participants? What was the format? What was it for? Well, uh, Jim Rice was there, and then along with Cal and myself, we were the only uh, Hall of Fame representatives. But Al Bumbry, longtime Oriole and still lives in Baltimore, was there. Mike Bordick, who uh, uh, maybe not be a name that a lot of fans recognize, but I, I first saw Mike when he played for the Maine Black Bears in college and then was a very efficient infielder for the A's and the Orioles for years, longtime broadcaster. And kind of part of the story with a lot of organizations now, Mike has been cut loose from broadcasting because they they don't necessarily want the baseball guys with the opinions. They want guys that can spew out the numbers and statistics. So, uh, but it was good. Uh, That's one of the uh, enjoyable things about some of the 
uh, events that I'm able to attend, both the alumni golf events, which I haven't been able to do too many of those in my broadcast schedule in the past. And then now the Hall of Fame Classic game coming up in two weeks. I'll see uh, a representative from every team in the big leagues, a, a past player, Brian Dozier, will be representing the Twins. So that's one of the uh, enjoyable things there about catching up with the guys. But it also, uh, and we can slot this a little later in the telecast, I want to address that pitching and velocity, but sure. uh, it's what I call the great divide, which is now existent in baseball, where those of us that that played the game and have a lot of experience, uh, I would like to think a lot of wisdom, not based on the fact that we're smarter, but based on the fact that we've had a lot of experience with failure as well as success, we are of no value anymore to big league organizations. That's a general statement, but that's what I've found. And that's what comes out in meetings like that, whether it be Jim Rice or Mike Bordick or myself. And I was trying to think of where it started. Uh, I go back to the, uh, to the 98 Yankees. I mean, I didn't have a lot of discussions there. David Cohn liked to talk pitching, uh, Andy Pettit. But, uh, of course, being in the clubhouse and following a team every day, they get comfortable with you being around. But nowadays, if I walked into a big league clubhouse, clubhouse even the Twins, it's almost like you feel like a stranger. So our, our role really becomes one of an ambassador role. And that would be like those golf tournaments. In my case with the twins, I spend time with season ticket holders. I'll be there in about a month and sit in the suite with one of them during the game. And that's kind of sad because uh, baseball management is going for guys with statistical knowledge, but, uh, and I've used this analogy before, the difference between knowledge and wisdom is when if you ask the statistical guys, uh, and I'll go back in time and say, what's your information on how to pitch Willie Mays? And so they could spew out the statistics, where to pitch him. But wisdom is when Robin Roberts, the great Hall of Famer, said when asked how he pitched Willie Mays, tell me the inning, the score, and the count. And uh it's amazing when I mention that to uh, old-time baseball people, how they perk up and say, wow, you know, I didn't think of it that way. But that's the difference between the uh, statistics, uh, statistical influence today and, and the lack of uh, calling on the wisdom. Uh, I experienced that in spring training with the Twins when you have Paul Molitor, Tony Oliva, uh, Rod Carew, and uh, really they don't, uh, they don't pick the brains of those people the way we did when – uh, we were able to do it from Warren Spahn, Robin Roberts, Whitey Ford, and the like. Yeah, that that was, and, and I, I grew up in the generation that, whether it was coaching or playing, I bothered the heck out of the the guys that had been there, done that, because that was your source of, you know, skipping steps, understanding uh, just how to get through things that, that you're going to go through down the road, so maybe you can live through somebody else's mistakes or experiences is it and you kind of alluded to it's the players is is it also the coaches is it also the front offices it's all encompassing you feel yeah i think i think i don't know if it's a directive from uh from management hey when these guys come in you know stay away from them now they're gonna feed yeah. you full of different ideas i don't think they would do that i don't think they'd be stupid enough to do that but i think a lot of it is the coaches there are actually uh and there's probably more than one now there are teams in the big leagues that their entire coaching staff, not one of them has ever had any major league playing experience. Uh, and that's, that's just, they're missing out on so much there. So I, I think, yes, it's the coaches that would be uncomfortable coming to me uh, as a pitching coach and saying, uh, well, this guy's having a little trouble. Would you give him some ideas? Well, the ideas that I would give him might not fit at all with uh, today's mechanical approach to it, you know, by looking at video and these different machines, which can be very helpful. But I relate everything to, uh, uh, you know, to how I failed trying certain things and then changed it and it became successful. So, uh, yeah, there's a there's a divide there where you feel very uncomfortable. I can't think of a pitching coach. Uh, the last one was probably Carl Willis, who I coached 
in Cincinnati who would ask me questions. Uh, John Stuper, who was a longtime coach at Yale, retired now, uh, you know, he would use a lot of the things that I suggested to him in his coaching days at uh, Yale. But now I, I just think those days are over. It sounds almost like an indoctrination. Well, it, it is. It's a, it's a separation. And I, uh, I, I guess, you know, there have been a, I think Keith Law wrote a book of a few. He's a, I think he's with uh, ESPN Fox. I think he writes some for MLB. But it, it really annoyed me when he used the expression bag of hair, what we did in the past. He was talking about how worthless complete games are and the wins doesn't mean anything. So when you have guys like that that have never played and they're writing books and feeding you know, the modern generation full of that information, all of a sudden they might get the idea, well, you know what? Those guys were lucky. They didn't really, they weren't really up to the same talent level as the, today's players. So we're not going to listen to them. That, that in short kind of seems to be the attitude of many. Yeah. And I think that's why grassroots baseball is so important now, because as you're describing your encounters with grown adults, the inability to ask questions, to think critically, and to think in general, to almost be afraid to challenge what's going on. Um, I, I employ our audience here that's involved with youth to please get these young kids out thinking, let them challenge what's going on out there, uh, give them choices uh, in terms of here's how we should do things. Let, let them think, let them talk, let them communicate, because uh, yeah. otherwise we're going to create another generation of robots. Yeah, I agree. You need to... Uh... Uh, I, I was, um, you know, I was encouraged by uh, reading this Lars Newtbar story with the Cardinals. What a remarkable story that is. We can talk in a little bit about that. But, uh, yeah, the, uh, the staying away from the big league experience and uh, just using the mechanical knowledge, uh, that, of course, up until this year, created a lot of the long games where hitters were stepping out of the box, pitchers were walking around the mound. And now uh, with these games being played in, in, you know, two hours and 20 minutes, uh, guys are relying, players are relying on their intuitive skills and thinking quicker. And, and the games, I haven't, every place I go, I get people that are baseball fans that are saying, I love this pitch clock. When I played with the guys at the Ripken tournament, one fella said, you know, my wife said, hey, I can watch baseball again. It doesn't take three and a half hours with all this dead time. So, you know, that's uh, that's a byproduct of not giving uh, players and pitchers too much time out there to think, but make quick decisions and rely on their own intuitive skills and their own intellectual ability. Yeah. And you, you had mentioned, we don't want to mention the, the, the name of the coach in general, but there was a communication between a club uh, in regards to a coach hired, that kind of makes your point a little bit about this great divide. That oh, you want to my share. goodness. That, that is a story that is just incredible. So I was told, and I'm going to keep names private because I don't want to expose anybody, but uh, a coach that is a uh, major league hitting coach in his previous days, and there's probably plenty of these, was with another major league team. And so the manager of a team in the past who had had this coach as, I believe, a minor league hitting coach called the current, some of the, mem some of the uh, people involved with the current team and said, I don't know, you know, why you hired that guy because we, his philosophies are totally wrong about the fundamentals of hitting. And I said, how does this happen? A big league team? hires a guy that another organization, you know, maybe it's like a player, I don't know, that didn't do well with one organization, he does with another. But that's that's just so, uh, I guess, bewildering to hear stories like that that are going on behind the scenes. Yeah, that's unfortunate on many levels, um, from a knowledge standpoint, from a undermining standpoint, too. I mean, it's it, it just goes to show that the divide is just not with, you know, it's, it's, there's, there's a lot of divides in baseball right now. I, I can't imagine um, it being a strong, sound working body with stuff like that going on. Yeah. Um, and one of the things we did, and I've mentioned this before is, is years ago, I not only went to player pitchers on another team, 
But uh, I, when I was coaching the Reds, and I, I mentioned this before, Tom Browning uh, had a little screwball, pretty good one. But uh, when my friend Ron Paranoski was was coaching for the Dodgers, they had Fernando Valenzuela. So I went to Perry and said, uh, they were in Cincinnati. I said, would Fernando come out and show Tommy how he holds a screwball, how he releases it? So those are examples of how we used to work together before all the uh, the information was available long before the internet. Uh, if we went into, for example, the Baltimore, and uh, they had just played the Tigers, and we're going to play the Tigers next, I would go to Dave McNally, who was a left-hand pitcher that I knew from my days when he was a high school kid in Missoula, in Montana. And I said, Mac, I, I see Willie Horton. I see the numbers in the box scores. Man, he's swinging the bat. How? Uh, tell me a little bit about how you were pitching him. So that's the way we would gather information because a lot of times when you look at 162 games, you see the overall numbers, but a lot has to do with when you're facing a hitter and when you're playing a team. Like the Red Sox recently were on a roll. They won seven or eight in a row. Well, if you're the team playing the Red Sox then, you know, that was a difficult challenge trying to beat them. Well, another month down the road, they may not be the same team. They're not playing as well. So then you wonder why, how in the world are they getting, are they losing all these games now? Well, the same thing is true with individuals. If you face a, a hitter in the spring and he's not p uh, hitting too well, now he's a completely different hitter in the, in the fall. He's got a lot of experience. He's starting to, to play up to his game. So you have to factor into those things, if that makes sense. Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. And I think, you know, the things that you're talking about are, there's a thread between all of it. When you're going in these clubhouses or you're at these functions, I sometimes wonder if these young kids, players anyway, forget the managers and the coach and the management, if these young kids even know how to communicate with somebody like yourself in an intelligent way. And um, there's such a disconnect right now with yeah. in that regard. You had mentioned lefty pitchers, and I know we had we had kind of put stuff back and forth on text and talk before the show. I was embarrassed a little bit that I didn't know a ton about this one one pitcher, um, Mike Cuellar. And you had mentioned it made me feel better when you said you spoke to Josh, the Hall of Fame, and even he had to look it up. So there's no better authority than that. But um, yeah. Mike and Sandy, Mike Cuellar, Sandy Koufax, you had a comparison between those two. Oh my goodness! You know, playing with the playing with the guys in Baltimore, and they were longtime Oriole fans. And we started talking about pitchers and Koufax. You know, and they said, "Who do you think's the greatest ball well, in my era?" And they brought up Mike Cuellar. You know, his six year Cuellar six. Year, I said, "Really?" So I looked it up. Well, if you look up Mike Cuellar from 1969 to 74. His numbers, other than strikeouts and no hitters, were the equal or, in many cases, better. I mean, he averaged 280 innings a year. He averaged 23, 22 wins a year over that six-year period of time. And this is where the Hall of Fame, you know, it, it it's so, I guess, I don't know if I'd use the word fragile, unpredictable. So Sandy was like uh, 36 and 40 his first six years, Sandy Koufax. He got the bonus money to sign, which meant he had to be on the major league roster for two years, and he didn't get a chance to pitch regularly. So that slowed him down, 36 and 40. And then Mike Cuellar, his first six years, was like 42 and 40. He came up with the Astros and went back to the minors, played with Cardinals. So if you ended his career after 74, after like 12 years, like Sandy's career was 10 or 12 years, you would make an equal case for Mike Cuellar being in the Hall of Fame. I mean, when I looked at those numbers, I was blown away. Uh, like I said, not the strikeouts, although here's a cute little story. Back in uh, 73, they were playing the Angels, and Jim Palmer told me this story. They're driving out to the ballpark of the bus, and they're going to face Nolan Ryan. So they're, they're needle and quayar about, well, how many are you going to strike out tonight, you know, pitching against Ryan? Well, Quayar said, I'll match him. So wouldn't you know, the Orioles win the game 3-1 to one in 11 innings, 
Cuellar goes the distance. Ryan goes 10 and a third. Nolan struck out 13. Cuellar struck out 12. Now, Mike Cuellar couldn't black your eye with 60 feet with his fastball, but he had a great slow curve and a great screwball. And that was an, that was an example of a, you know, a real pitcher pitcher versus a power pitcher. But uh, I know Cuellar took great delight getting that win and showing his teammates that he could strike out double digits too. Yeah, and I was going to ask you what kind of pitcher he was. I know he threw 15 seasons in the big leagues, if I remember reading yeah, right. You know, he, he it was interesting. He always would get off to a slow start, and they would think, well, Cuellar is about uh, washed up. Uh, his nickname was Crazy Horse. He was as superstitious a pitcher as uh, as there ever was. But he uh, he had the ability as a lefty and not throwing hard to run that fastball toward the hitter and run it over the inside part of the plate. Then he had a big overhand 12 to 6 curveball and then a screwball. And he was a pitcher. You know, he just, he had the knack of pitching. Uh, he was so superstitious that when we played the Orioles in the 69 playoffs, Billy Martin was our manager and Cuellar was scheduled to pitch, I think, game two behind Jim Palmer. So Cuellar ran into a guy in Baltimore at a bar and he gave him 50 bucks and said, can, he said, get a black cat. And when Cuellar is warming up before the game, right by the railing, throw that black cat out in front of him. We, we think that, that'll affect him. So, well, the guy never showed up, but, you know, crazy horse, he would sit on the bench. He'd light a cigarette. He'd take three puffs. He always had to have Elrod Hendricks catch him with the between innings with the when he went out for his warm up pitches. So he was a left hander like we all are with some quirky habits. But boy, for for those six years, he was as good as there was. Yeah, um, I, I enjoyed researching him too. Four twenty win seasons. It seems like that was very common with the Orioles to get twenty game winners. Well, they had four at one time. They were the first team that did that since the Indians back in 54. And, of course, we were on the four-man rotation. I was just looking at, uh, you know, recent outings of Verlander, who's now defeated all 30 teams, and Clayton Kershaw. You know, they're the, they're the two elite who uh, certainly would go to the Hall of Fame, and Verlander still is holding out hopes to, to reach 300. I don't know if he'll do that. I think he's at 246, but... See, they're pitching every five days, and they're not pitching complete games. So that makes it difficult. They're the greatest of this era. But when you look at, uh, I think the, the most glaring example of durability is Mickey Lolich with the Tigers. When Mickey pitched 376 innings one year, he started 45 games and completed 29 uh, on the four-man rotation. And, you know, that's like two – that's two years worth of pitching right now, at least, because oh, the game's become more, so so specialized. Yeah, if you get 150 innings out of your pitcher, that's that's a phenomenal year now. They, yeah, you know, 200. You know, for a pitcher to pitch 200, wow, that's a, that's a real sign of durability. But you know that as as Cal said when uh, Cal Ripken, when I said uh, you got to cringe when you see the injury list and the players, the reasons they're missing games and. You know, he wasn't arrogant about it. He just said, you know, it's a different mindset. He said, you know, when you and I played, you just you came to the park and it was your day to pitch, you pitch, your day to play, and you just played every day. And, and nowadays, I think uh, where guys are given in all sports, uh, you know, softer training, They're, they don't train as hard in the in the prior season, in the prior to the season, and uh, they get maintenance days. So they're kind of comfortable with not playing nine innings every day like Cal did year after year. And, uh, boy, that was a sense of pride, you know, as a pitcher. And you felt what a privilege it is to have a spot in a big league starting rotation, get to start 38 to 40 games a year. I'm not going to miss one of those starts unless my arm's broken. So you took great pride. And uh, even if you didn't feel well, and there were many days where you had the aches and pains, and if they had MRIs, it'd probably show you shouldn't be pitching, but you were going to go to the post and figure out a way to try to do it. Yeah. I know we're going we're gonna to get into the max effort with the pitchers causing some injuries, but right before we do that, how much of these injuries in Cal would be great at talking about? Same with you. I mean, you, you got out there and practiced hard. How much do the 
does the past generation think injuries have to do with guys not getting out there and practicing hard every day? They don't know how to play hard because they don't practice hard. Yeah, I, I think a lot of it is that is that you know they they count pitches in the little league, uh, and this is kind of an old fossil talking, and it, it doesn't mean that we were tougher than they are today, but at least when I was a kid, uh, I shoveled snow, I cut the uh, you know cut the grass with a hand lawnmower. We did a lot more work with our hands and our bodies, and I think by the time I was eighteen. You know, my body was maybe fully formed and stronger than the kids today who came up in the video game era. Uh, you know, they practice once a week. Most times in the Little League, you won't see uh, kids go out to practice unless they're playing, unless they have a uniform on. I even saw that with my grandsons when they were younger. You know, it was the day they had their uniform on that, you know, they went out to play. The other times they might have a an organized practice once a week, which didn't last very long. but you know, in the prior eras, we were, you know, playing baseball every day during the summer, sandlot ball. And uh, so I think we, our bodies matured and formed uh, bones. Uh, you know, some of the bones now aren't really fully formed until a, a young man or a young woman is a certain age. And that's why we see some of these, uh, some of these injuries that are now happening with uh, injuries that we never heard of before. Yeah. strained obliques and back spasms and all kinds of things. Yep. It's all in that same area, the forearms, the scaps, the obliques. It's uh, and yeah, the, the, uh, the surgery, excuse me for interrupting there, but the surgery, just touch on that a minute is Rocco Baldelli actually told me in spring training when I had a brief encounter with him and he, we, we began to talk about, asked me to describe my fastball to him, which I said was not based on velocity. It was based on movement. And he said, well, today, every player, every pitcher pitches, throws every pitch with maximum velocity. And I said, well, to myself, I said, that's really stupid. Well, now the twins signed this Tyler Molly, and he's going under the knife with Tommy John surgery because you just can't do that and avoid injury. And uh, until, until we come along with a mentality that if a kid's capable of throwing 90, teach him how to pitch at 85 or 84 and have college coaches accept that, that you don't have to throw 95 to be an effective pitcher. But until that mentality changes, um, the orthopedic surgeons are going to keep driving Ferraris. Yeah. And we had uh, Wayne Rosenthal on earlier this week on uh, Man on Second, and he was a pitching coach for the Marlins back when they won the world championship. And he had mentioned a relationship he had with Josh Johnson who came into camp one year and he was only, he was throwing 85 and he was usually topping out at 90. And his message was great. He said, learn to pitch at 85. And then when you get back up to 90, you'll be a better pitcher. And uh, I think the, and I, I would like to encourage you. I know it's frustrating probably and encourage you and, and all the former major leaguers and managers and minor leaguers, because I'm going to keep doing it myself. I would keep imposing your opinion because at some point in time, I hope this pendulum swings, swings back and baseball needs you guys. So don't, uh, don't give in my friend. Well, I, I hope not. I appreciate that. See, we had an, we had a slogan and I mentioned it before, I'm sure, but there was a slogan in my early days that you never really learn how to pitch until you hurt your arm. Now by hurt, we didn't mean the kind of injury that was going to require surgery, but, in my case, uh, I had struck out 19 in the Southern Association, and that was a, a, a record at the time. I think Jim Maloney tied it. And then I struck out uh, the first four in my next start, and uh, I finished that inning, but I, I felt something in my shoulder. So what they did was said, take 10 days off. So I took 10 days off, and then I came back, and I never really had the power after that that I did. Then in the in the instructional league that that fall, it's a developmental league that we had in the off season. I grabbed a ball barehanded and reached out to tag to tag uh, Al Luplo. He was an outfielder with the Indians, and he was a football uh, running back. So he he ran with those high knees. So he didn't do this intentionally, but as I reached out to tag him, he hit me on the back of the left wrist with his kneecap. 
And I fractured a bone in the middle finger of my left hand in the back. So I, I missed a, a little time there, I think 30 days or something. So when I came back, the grip on the ball, the pressure was different. The ball was moving away. I wasn't as uh, much of a power pitcher. So all of a sudden I learned, boy, I can get outs with ground balls. So I've said this today. My, my idea of a perfect game would be 27 pitches, 27 outs. So I found out that, well, I'm not a strikeout pitcher anymore. I'm a ground ball pitcher. And uh, I, I found that out at, a, at an early age, which I think enabled me to play for a long time. But, uh, yeah, that was the expression then. You never learn how to pitch till you suffer some kind of an arm injury. Now, if you had a little arm injury, they'd immediately take an MRI, x-rays, whatever. They might say, well, we're going to go in and repair this. Uh, and we just uh, – out of lack of knowledge from a medical standpoint, we just figured out a way to pitch with it. You know, I, I hear the MRI thing, and, and we we didn't say it as a joke, but it, when we're looking at the numbers, DeGrom is going to have more MRIs this year than starts. Um, yeah. Wow. And um, <laughs> with the MRI now, is that almost, a, I don't know, a, a protection for the clubs to, you know, hey, as soon as they get the MRI, they, you know, it's unquestioned. They go on the DL. Is it is it somewhat of a? I don't want to call it a hoax, but um, if if you follow what I'm what I'm getting at, that they. Yeah, I, I think what it is, Dave, is that you know teams have all this money invested in a pitcher. Well, the pitcher has an agent, and the agents have, as we've seen with Scott Boris, who does a great job for his players. And you know, if if I were a player, I'd probably want him to be my agent because he starting with the Alex Rodriguez contract back in Texas, you know, you, you can see what he does uh, with the results. And so they swing a lot of weight. Well, I think clubs, if a, if a pitcher came in and say, you know, I got a little tenderness in my elbow. Well, then if they didn't have an MRI and they'll say, well, let's see how it feels next start. And he went out and he injured himself. His agent would be saying, what, what are you doing? My guy already told you that his, his elbow was bothering him. Why didn't you take an MRI or do something to back it up? So I think that's what drives these things. Uh, and again, going back to my own experience in 59, after I had that shoulder issue, I was not the same pitcher. And all of a sudden, Red Marion, our manager, calls me and said, kid, you're going to the big leagues tomorrow. Well, that was exciting. But I said, Red, I'm, I'm not the same pitcher I was. You know that. I said, my arm angle was dropped down here. He said, go up there and tell him about it. See, the big leagues had no idea in those days what was going on in the minor leagues other than to just read the stat sheet. So I go up there. I make my debut. Lasted about three innings, and the first thing he said, well, what happened to you? You're not the same pitcher you were in the spring. And that would never happen today because uh, of the medical technology and how protective organizations are about uh, the health of their player, which, you know, which is a good thing. Oh, sure. Yeah, it's a, it's a good thing. Like, like most things, it's a good thing as long as it doesn't go past that law of diminishing return. Yeah. And, you, you, we talked about the max effort. I wrote about this on Facebook this morning and help us get to DeGrom and Scherzer and Rodon. And um, as, as human beings, we're endurance animals. And these pitchers are being asked to throw max velocity, which is not an endurance technique, ironically by scientists that are running the game. So it, it's so counterintuitive to me that scientists are asking these guys to do this max velocity stuff. When, if you look at biology, we're endurance animals, whether we're pitchers or just a regular human, um, let alone pitching, but talk, talk on the max velocity a little bit. Well, I, I think the, the answer to what you mentioned at the top of our show today about uh, the question on command and velocity is I, I had this drill and I think John uh, Stuper used that at Yale when, when I would get a pitcher that would talk about, uh, well, I've got three pitches or four pitches, and can you get them over when it counts three and one, three and two? Yes, I can. I said, okay, got, we're going to go down to the bullpen tomorrow, and here's our practice drill. You get warmed up like you're uh, you're ready to go in a game. You're not going to pitch today anyway. So I'd have Bruce Kim, uh, our coaching instructor and bullpen catcher. His uh, claim to fame was Bruce caught Mark Fidrich in all his starts when the bird was – on that tear in uh, Detroit in the 70s. So I would say, okay, Bruce Kim is sitting behind the plate. 
You can see his shin guards, both knees. You see his chest protector, both shoulders. So there's the strike zone. It's a rectangle. Now you throw me 10 fastballs in the strike zone anywhere. And so one pitcher threw four. I said, well, so far you don't have, you're just a one pitch pitcher. If that, you can only throw four of your 10 fastballs in the strike zone. So the solution is you continue to throw your fastball until you find a speed that you can get it in the strike zone, whether it's nine out of 10. I mean, Tom Browning wasn't a hard thrower, never hit 90, pitched a perfect game, 120 games. You find a cruising speed where you can throw that fastball in the strike zone and eventually throw it to, it's the only pitch you can throw to all four quadrants of the strike zone. Low and away, low and in, high and away, high and in. So if you can command your fastball and uh, add a changeup or whatever, you can pitch through a lineup. You can work through a lineup. But if you don't have command of your fastball, that's the number one asset a pitcher has. And that's why guys who didn't throw particularly hard in the past were successful because they had command of their fastball. And that's a good drill to find out those that say, well, I'm going to throw maximum velocity. I don't care about command, which is what's happening today. Uh, but, but that's the answer to trying to find that blend of the proper velocity and yet being able to command it within the strike zone. See, to me, that's a non-threatening thing that people that are they're locking you know, Hall of Famers, former big leaguers out, that's a non-threatening way to help them grow what they're trying to do, but use the past and common sense to even enhance it. I mean, it's, it's to me, it, that's insane. That to me, what you just described there makes sense and everybody should be jumping on it because it's simple. Um, in yeah. theory. So, when you, so just to kind of, for the audience, for young pitchers at home, shoulders to, to knees, throw, throw 10 pitches, probably eight or nine out of 10, you got to get it in there with no pressure. I would imagine to be, to be successful. And then you hit the four zones with the same pitch and, and you feel like you get through a lineup maybe twice with that. Yeah. You know, years ago before the, the modern technology, now they have it electronically, the strike zone. But when we were kids, I think I first read it in Bob Feller's book back probably in the forties is, and even the Dodgers had it in spring training in the Koufax era was called pitching strings. Now you had, you had two broomsticks about six feet apart, and then they had these little screw eyes in the broomstick, and with rope, you made the strike zone out of rope, and you stuck it in the ground. And the catcher, can you can you picture that right now? Yeah, yeah, perfect. And then the and the catcher sat right behind that strike zone with the ropes, and the deal was down in Dodger camp. Uh, you try to see how many strikes you can throw in that strike zone. Now they, now you can do that electronically. You don't need the old-fashioned method. But that again is the same drill. Learn to throw. Here, here's a great example uh, when we're on this topic of Sandy Koufax. I mentioned he was 36 and 40 his first six years. Had a live arm, threw hard, and Norm Sherry. Uh, the backup catcher to Johnny Roseboro said to him, you know, you're throwing so hard and you don't have command of it. What if you just learn to take a little bit off and throw them in the strike zone and just not really let them hit it, but, you know, make them hit it. And so Sandy has used that expression. And I have mentioned it in my broadcast for years that when he started throwing not as fast, but in the strike zone to, encourage contact suddenly the hitters couldn't hit it you know so when he took so when he threw as hard as he could he couldn't get it over so now oh, i don't throw them quite that hard and they missed it anyway so he found that cruising speed uh that he could throw in the strike zone and a good example is that when sandy uh came back on two days rest in game seven i was his opponent that day in the 65 world series I gave up two runs on three hits, three consecutive pitches, rather. And now Sandy had a two to nothing lead. And in the fifth inning, he told Johnny Roseboro, I can't throw my curveball anymore. You know, he had pitched a shutout two days before that. So they literally got our team out, the best hitting team in the American League, the last four innings with nothing but fastballs. 
and the, our hitters couldn't touch it because it wasn't just a fastball down the middle. It was a fastball in the proper locations. Yeah. Like Jim, Jim Rice made an interesting statement the other day uh, in, in Baltimore when he was quizzing some of the young pitchers that uh, had been with the Orioles in the past. And uh, he said, uh, what do you think the toughest pitch to hit is? And I said, well, a well-controlled fastball. And he, he didn't give that a positive response right away, but it was kind of what he ended up saying. He says, the pitcher's pitch. When the pitcher makes his pitch, that's the toughest pitch to hit. Most of the hits and most of the home runs are off mistakes. And so there's a, there's an example right there. If you have command of that fastball and you can make your pitch, that's the most difficult pitch for the hitter to handle. Yeah. I, I, and I, I like that phrase because, you know, when you're using that, that uh, possessive pronoun, your pitch, or if I'm pitching my pitch, that the singular possessive pronoun, I don't think pitchers know what their pitch is nowadays because it's being told to them with the throw. So they may not have that innate ability to figure out what their pitch is, like Jim Rice is talking about. And again, there's a disconnect between the modern day of controlling a pitcher's, you know, unthinking brain. And uh, yeah, that, that's a that's a good point because Johnny Sane, one of his favorite terms was always he used the word organize a lot. Let's get he said now so and so he's got like Sam McDowell was a great example. Sam was the most uh, dominant pitcher back in each. He should have been another Sandy Koufax, but, and Sam would admit that himself. He had four great pitches, but he wanted to make it too, you know, too difficult. So, you know, instead of, uh, instead of keeping it simple, uh, you know, he made it more difficult than it was. Be, uh, re- rephrase that question you just asked me before that, as I was going into McDowell. Oh, with, with Jim Rice, uh, here's a Hall of Fame. Yeah, yeah. So his, so his pitch. So if, uh, if he just had command of his fastball, uh, he had four great pitches, but uh, he would invariably make uh, a couple of bad pitches in hitters' locations uh, all the time that would end up beating him. So he, even though he had four great pitches, he didn't have great command of all of them. He was a strikeout pitcher, but – that's what it comes down to, you know, owning owning that pitch and just knowing. Uh, I mean, I can think of days that I had, I knew I had command of the fastball moving down and away. I could catch that outside part of the plate, knee high to right hand hitters, and most of the time they're going to hit a, a a ground ball. Uh, and, and there again, when Johnny had requested or had said to me, you got to, you got to get your pitches organized. What works for you? Well, I found out that by really working on that fastball more than my other pitches, the logic would be if, if a coach said, what's your best pitch fastball? What, what's your worst pitch change up? What do you think you ought to spend your time on? Well, I guess the change up. No, you spend your most time on the pitch that is your best pitch. And you want to be able to own that and throw it in that zone a high percentage of the time, and uh, that's command. Yeah, no, I like that point. I'm uh, the, Jim Rice, a Hall of Famer, saying that should be a clear answer to everybody. He's telling people how to get him out, and uh, and and all and, and all hitters would probably agree with that, without a doubt. We, we we're coming up on forty five minutes, but I wanted to get to. Do you, do you want to go to the Lars Newtbar story? I mean, what a great. Oh, yeah, I just read that in the uh, in the Players Tribune, Lars Newtbar unusual name and for those fans that haven't followed him a lot you know he has a ja- his mother is japanese and his story about struggling through the miners and getting these uh, jobs to keep food on the table and then becoming a big leaguer which he is right now is just a remarkable story and perseverance and uh you know finally you know he was so transparent about his lack of production uh, that's what impressed me is sometimes it's hard for it's hard for any of us, I think, that have had success like in high school and all of a sudden you're, you're not having success. And it's easy to say, well, you know, uh, I'm not getting the breaks. Or, and he was just so transparent about saying how bad a, a player he was, but he just kept after it. And now, you know, he's in the he's in the big leagues and uh, playing with the Cardinals and, and uh, got such a refreshing attitude about. Uh, what it's like to to have the privilege of playing in the big leagues every day. 
I enjoyed it too. And he was, he become a cult hero with the Japanese WBC team. Cause yeah, read his background. He, he, this may have something to do with his self-awareness. He was probably the fifth best athlete in his house. His father played at Cal Poly, uh, San Luis Obispo. His brother played in the Orioles organization. His sister was a star volleyball player. And his mother is, he jokes about it, says she was, she self-proclaimed the greatest athlete Japan's ever seen. Um, <laughs> And uh, so being the fifth or sixth best athlete in his house probably made him very self-aware. Uh, he even said in high school. Well, high school you know another, I'm sure you know it, but there's another good story right along those lines of one of the most famous athletes we have in the country, and that's Tom Brady. Tom Brady will admit he was, I think, the fifth best athlete in his family because all four of his sisters – were I believe all American in either volleyball, lacrosse, softball, swimming, something or other. But, uh, you know, that's what kept him humble. <laughs> and he admits it. He said, I wasn't even the best athlete in my family. <laughs> yeah. Those are, and you, you hit a key point that I hope people are listening to with um, self-awareness, um, making mistakes. Because, I mean, if you can't handle, if you're not self-aware and you can't handle making mistakes, baseball is not the sport. Uh, because in and, and life, I mean, if you can make mistakes and you're not afraid, you're not fragile enough to, you know, to, to crumble with them and you're, you're self-aware enough to take them and turn them into principles, there's really nothing that can stop you. You can just keep moving forward with anything. Yeah, so I, I think you, and that's no, uh, no, you know, revelation that people haven't heard, but we all, we all learn more, I think, from our failures. And uh, it took me a while to learn in pitching that, the most damaging pitch late in the game, in a close game, is a poorly thrown breaking ball. So you go over the meetings before the game, and they'll talk about, well, this guy's a good fastball. He's a good fastball. Everybody's a good fastball hitter. But it gets late in the game, uh, and I see this now with these guys calling the modern the new pitches called the sweeper. Well, the sweeper's been around for years. It's just half curveball, half slider. And there are more of those that are poorly thrown that aren't the pitcher's pitch that result in home runs than any other pitch by far. And yet the most effective pitch, and Johnny Sane helped me with this, eighth inning tie game, Frank Robinson, good fastball hitter. Well, my best chance to get him out would be with a well-controlled fastball because if the breaking ball is not really uh, gold standard breaking ball, that's the one he's apt to hit out more than a fastball. And uh, it, that's what I learned from failure early in my career, giving up some long balls late in the game. And finally, I went to the fastball and I eliminated uh, those mistakes uh, by far. Yeah, it goes back to what Jim Rice said too. The, the home runs and the, the base hits are usually made off of mistakes. It's not off the pitcher's yeah, I saw it the other day. My friend here in Vermont is a big Padres uh, fan of the Padres are playing the Dodgers. And Josh Hader, who is their top closer, is facing Mookie Betts. And they're down to their last strike. Uh, their last out. The count's three and one. Well, the, the pitching adage is late in the game, a mistake inside is a home run. A mistake outside is a single because they have to reach for it and you might hit it to right field. Well, what does he do? He throws Mookie a nice fastball in the inside third of the plate, uh, belt high, boom, tie game. The Dodgers go on to win it. So that was not the pitcher's pitch. That was the hitter's pitch. So they'll say, well, he's a good fastball hitter. Yeah, he is a good fastball hitter. But if you throw your fastball in the right spot, he's not as good a hitter. No, I love that point. And that, that's something that I'm, I'm glad we hammered in today with our are not just our young audience. I mean, we're right up in the major league front offices. So all the front offices out here too, please, please uh, let's, let's end this great divide and let's, uh, let's start making the game better. Jim, uh, we're, we're closing up on an hour here. We're, you've been always gracious with your time. What parting shots you want to leave our audience with today? Well, uh, I think watching, uh, was it uh, his last name Schmidt with the giants, Casey, he has had a, a start like none other than Willie McCovey. I don't know if you've followed those stats the last few days. He got uh, four hits yesterday, including a home run. But I think it's the uh, young players. We're going to see 
Uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right. Yuri Perez is going to make his debut for the Marlins tonight. Yeah. He's the youngest starter. Is it Perez? He had, uh, gosh, he had 11 strikeouts last week, I think, in five innings. So he's yeah. climbing he's, Yeah, he's the youngest starter for the Marlins since Jose Fernandez years ago. So it's going to be good to keep an eye on him because the Marlins – you just keep scratching your head why don't they don't win more because, you know, Pablo Lopez is with the Twins now. I've had a chance. What a delightful young man he is. And uh, he was one of those pitchers with Alcantara, and they just always seem to have a solid starting rotation, uh, and yet they're not winning that much. But here's Perez, who uh, is looked upon as maybe the next uh, Sandy Alcantara. Be interesting to watch how he does tonight. Yeah, I, I hope he's had, uh, and you would know better than anybody, I hope he's had enough time to learn a little bit and he's got enough resilience that he can handle the bumps in the road that come with that major league debut and wish him all the luck. I've seen his minor league starts. I mean, I've been able to watch it. Um, he had some electric stuff. Yeah, I think he'll benefit from having Sandy uh, Alcantara there. Uh, you know, and I think this kid's like 6'8", uh, yeah. tall and thin, and uh, I think he'll – He'll uh, like a like a Latino big brother, like having Pedro Martinez if you're in Boston when Eduardo Rodriguez was there. And now, of course, he's pitching great again for Detroit. So that's very helpful to have kind of a role model like that on your staff. Oh, without question. Without question. Well, great show as usual. Our audience is, is loving your shows. I get texts and emails about, you know, making sure they got the time and date. So our show today is being recorded on a Friday. It's going to be, be released tomorrow morning on a Saturday. So it'll have the whole weekend to run. So that's when people are usually listening to the shows. So, Jim, thanks again for a great show here today with Cots Corner. Um, want a message to our audience here, episode 181 here, 17,000, creeping up on 17,500 subscribers. Download, listen, like, subscribe, rate, and review so we can battle those analytics of the podcast world and we can keep giving you great content like Jim did today here. Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or Stitcher will allow you to stream us. If you have another one, let me know. I'll subscribe to it. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Today's Facebook answer was about pitching, so and it's very appropriate to today's show. 72 countries, grassroots to MLB front offices, just trying to build a better baseball IQ. And as we promised, we will embrace the uncomfortable truths of baseball. We're going to hit them head on. And, you know, our program has no time for the comfortable lies. And I think we, we hit a few topics head on that, we believe in and we, we want to see fixed because I think the game will be better. It's not selfish motives. I think it makes the game better. But Jim, thanks so much for your time today. Great show today. Thanks, Dave. Always enjoyable. And have a great weekend. Audience, we'll see you next week. Yeah.